Progressive presents Forest Metaphors about bundling your home and auto. In sports, three goals is a hat trick. And when you bundle your home and auto with Progressive, you get a hat trick of great savings and round-the-clock protection. So you might be thinking, wait, that's two things. A hat trick is three. But in this metaphor, great savings counts as two goals and so does round-the-clock protection. So it's like four goals and that's more than three. It's basic math. Forest Metaphors, presented by Progressive. Bundle and protect today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discount not available in all states or situations. In the wilderness, when God was bringing the children of Israel, uh, he had taken them out of Egypt and he was going to take them into the promised land. He had them camp in the wilderness. And do you know that they literally had to camp facing the tent of meeting, according to Numbers chapter 2, verse 2, in the English Standard Version. That means they had to camp facing the tent of meeting. What was the tent of meeting? It represented the presence of God. They were to camp around the very presence of God. When the Lord sent the Israelites out to battle, and even when they were crossing into the promised land, do you remember that he said the priests had to go first and they had to carry the Ark of the Covenant? The Ark of the Covenant represents what? The presence of God, because the Lord, that's where he, he literally allocated himself to that place. Think about it. The God who is eternal, who existed before there was time, the God who is not confined to time, he's eternal. The same God that fills space, he's not, he's not confined to space, so he's, he's uh, literally infinite. The God that is all-knowing, the God that is omnipotent, he humbled himself, he condescended, and he literally placed himself in a box. Come on. Think about it. God put himself in a box called the Ark of the Covenant. He dwelt in the, there, it says, by the cherubim. Why? So that we could understand who he was. So that man could have a relationship with him, an encounter with him. God fills everything, but he says, here's where I dwell. I put myself in this box so you can know who I am. So you can approach me. So you can encounter me. It's an amazing thing. But yet, today, many churches camp around programs, preaching, and even personalities. The Lord wants us to pursue His presence. That last song said it's all about Him. It is. It's all about Him. If we make it about anything else or anyone else other than Jesus Christ, it's idolatry. And we need to repent. It's about Him. It's about his goodness. It's about his power. It's about his grace. It's about his person and who he is. He's an awesome and amazing God. The Bible says that we desperately need to seek the Lord in difficult and dark days. Throughout history, when difficult and dark days come, there's always been a remnant who have gone on their knees and began to seek God. Today, nothing's different. Today, we desperately need the Lord to intervene in our churches. You know, when we look at our nation, how polarized it is politically and, and in many different ways, you look at what's happening, the answer, guys, is not who gets elected into the put in the White House. That's not the answer. The answer isn't what happens politically in this nation or economically or socially. The answer is God, and we need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We need him to desperately intervene in the state of affairs in this nation, but it has to start with the church. If we want things to change out there, guys, it has to change with the church. It's got to start with us. You see, 
We need a revival, which is a revival of the true knowledge of God that starts in our lives, truly knowing who he is. You know, when we talk about revival, which if you remember Charles Finney, who was an, a lawyer, and God used him greatly for awakening, Charles Finney once said this. He said, a revival presupposes a declension. A revival presupposes a declension. In other words, if something needs revived or resuscitate, what does that say? So when God tells his people, you need to be revived, that means we are in bad shape. And somebody said, well, the word revival is not in the Bible. Yes, it is in the Bible. Repeatedly, there are times when, they, when God's people cry out, revive us again. Revive us. Come and see us again. And then that church in Revelation chapter 3 that has a reputation of being alive, but then God says, but you're actually dead. You have a reputation that you're alive. You're Pentecostal, in other words. You're charismatic, in other words. You got, a, you got happening worship, you know, and people are jumping and, and, <laughs> and people are singing the right songs and we're excited and, and all of that stuff. But deep down, God looks at our hearts, just like that last song that talks about going back to the heart of worship, the heart of worship. It's not what we do or what we say. God looks at our hearts. And ultimately, that is what is go we're going to answer for in the day of judgment. You know, Jesus said some very scary things. Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. Lord, we preached the gospel to the nations of the world. Lord, we did this, we did that. And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Worker of iniquity. In other words... They were doing the right things. These were church-going people. These were people that were active even in ministry. But he says, depart from me. I never knew you. You're a worker of iniquity. You're living a sinful lifestyle. You haven't changed. You're just like the people of the world, but you're masking it. You're hiding it. So we desperately need God to draw near to us. We desperately need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. When we read the book of Acts, we see a people that had learned to foster the atmosphere of heaven on earth. We read the book of Acts, and, and on Wednesday night, we're going to continue our, our study on the book of Acts and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We call them the Acts of the Apostle, but ultimately, it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit through a people. It's through individuals that yielded to the Holy Spirit. But we see that the, this, these people in the book of Acts, the first century church, they yielded themselves to the Holy Spirit. They made themselves available to him. They desperately desired his presence. It wasn't negotiable being filled with the Holy Spirit. They realized they needed it. They couldn't do what Jesus had called them to do. He, they, he, they couldn't live the way he had called them to live. Scripture says in Ephesians 2 verse 22 that the church is to be built together to become a dwelling place or a habitation of God in the Spirit. Dwelling place means to abide, to house permanently, connoting habitation, not just visitation. In other words, guys, if you knew you're having company, how many of you love to have unexpected company show up? Is anybody? Some, no, some people are cool with it. It's all right. right? And, but some people are like, don't you ever do that. You know, don't show up, right? You know, Jesus made a statement just before... He was crucified. He said, you know what? How I long to gather you under my wings, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, as a hen does its chicks. But you wouldn't let me. 
And he said, look, guys, he said, you're going to be judged. He prophesied to them that the city of Jerusalem was going to be judged and was going to be destroyed. He said, because you failed to recognize the hour of your visitation. Jesus came from heaven to earth to visit his people. But he was not welcomed in many instances. They failed to recognize the hour of their visitation. They weren't prepared for his company. You see, in Luke chapter 3, this is actually a passage of scripture that describes the ministry of the one we call John the Baptist. And when John was baptizing people in the River Jordan, people were asking, who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the coming one? He said, no, I'm, I'm not. He's going to come. He said, I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. I baptize you with water under repentance. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So who are you then, John? And the Bible says that he replied, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight. And the rough ways smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Who was the salvation of God? Jesus, Yeshua. And John is the one who was called to what? Prepare the people for the coming. You know, if you know that your brother, your sister, your friend, somebody you're really familiar with was coming to your home, you know, they just texted you and said, I'm going to be there in 20 minutes. Just want to hang out with you guys, have a coffee or whatever. You know, that's one thing. But when you hear that some, let's say the president is going to come to your house, okay, and then, you know, you, you get notified that on a certain day, the president is going to come to your home. Now, this is obviously fictitious, hopefully. But what happens? You're like, Secret Service guys are like, you know, the eagle has landed, and uh, he's going to be in your place in 20 minutes. How many would be, oh, that's cool, I'm good with that, right? Now, in other words, I'm using hyperbole here to make a point. The point is this. It's the value we place on the person determines how much preparation we must give. If it's just this person, my friend, almost said my maid, I thought it was in Australia, sorry. But you would kind of, Okay, it's all right. You can come by. I know you. It's good. Don't mind the mess. Don't mind the dishes. In my house, you never have to worry about that. There's no mess. There's no dishes. Because I do them all. No, I, I'm just kidding. But uh, seriously, it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter. But we just, we're cool. But the degree of the value we place on the person determines how much preparation we put in to receiving them. So what about preparing ourselves to meet with the Lord? How do we prepare? 
to meet with him. Now, somebody, I can get really, look, I could take this and make this very religious. I'm not going to do that. In other words, I could say, you need to wear a suit and a tie when you come to church. I always do, as you, as you can tell. Australia destroyed me. It's just, they're so chilled out and laid back. But the point is, somebody say, well, if you, you need to wear your best because you're going to meet God. God is with me 24-7. If I have to wear a suit and a tie to encounter God, then I should wear a suit and tie when I'm sleeping, and I should have a, wear a suit and tie when I'm having a shower because God's in the shower and God's in my room when I'm sleeping, right? Okay. I'm just saying, I'm just being a little bit absurd here, but the point taken, right? But the fact is, we have to still prepare for God. But the Bible says that man looks at the outward, but God looks at the heart, 1 Samuel 16, 7. So we need to prepare our hearts to meet with the Lord. How do we prepare to encounter God? How do you prepare for Sunday? Right? I mean, seriously. I, I, look it, I'm going to get a little bit old school on you here, okay? Like, they're saying Saturday night, I just won't do. Because i got to be on my best Sunday morning. I need to be prayed up. I need to be ready. My mind needs to be sharp. I don't need to be dragging my tail into church. I'm so tired. I'm yawning when I'm preaching. And I'm not able to give my very best. I need to do my very best. How do we pre prepare ourselves to meet with God? When we come before Him in prayer. Do we just flippantly bust open the door and run into His presence and kind of like, Hey God, here I am. You know what's going on? No, we need to prepare ourselves. The Bible says that we need to come before Him in holiness. We need to come before Him with fear and trembling. We need to acknowledge that He's a great King. We need to come before Him reverently. The Bible says to not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Three times a year in the Old Testament, they were to come before the Lord, their festivals. And it says, when you come, when you approach him, don't come empty-handed. Bring a gift. I was in Nigeria, Africa once, and I was told this was planned. I was going to meet with this, this king. And the king, I needed to meet with him in order to uh, ask his permission to do uh, an event, an evangelistic event we were going to do. And they told me, when you meet this king, he said, this is what you need to do. I was advised by Daniel Kalenda, <laughs> told me to do this. He said, when you meet the king, make sure you bring him a gift. Don't go be before the king empty-handed. I said, the king's got money. The king's wealthy. The king lives in a palace. He doesn't need my gift. He said, you don't need to give him much. Give him something unique. Give him something that he'd never experienced before. So I brought him some maple syrup cookies from Canada. Come on, I think no Nigerian king would ever have those. Right? And then I brought him some, some cash. And when I approached the king, I gave him a gift. In his palace, he allowed me to preach. He has a church in his palace. I preached to people in his palace. And I asked him humbly, King, I would seek your permission to conduct an evangelistic outreach to your people in your kingdom. Will you give us permission to do so? Technically, guys, we didn't need to do that. Technically, I could have just went in there, 
And we could have planned it all, but I was advised, even though you can do that, you're better off making sure you have the permission of the king because it's going to go to another level if you have the king back in you. There's a principle here. I can do whatever I want. The Bible says that if you want to have authority, you need to be under authority. You need to be submitted to authority. Do you know that that king gave me money? And he gave me a lot more than I gave him. He handed me an envelope where one of his guys did. And there was cash in there. The point is, when we come before God, we've got to come before him reverently. He says, come before me with a sacrifice. Come before me with an offering. And I don't want a lame sacrifice. I don't want a blemish sacrifice. You try giving that to your governor, Malachi chapter 1. See if he's pleased with it. Don't, don't, don't hold on to the best and give me your leftovers. Give me the excess. He said, I want your very best. The Bible calls it first fruits. It belongs to the Lord. We give our best to him. Then we keep the rest. That's a principle in Scripture. All the way through the Old Testament, Jesus taught the same thing. So we have to prepare the way for the Lord. We have to make the crooked path straight. Is there anything in your life that's crooked? Crooked. Do you know that the very word sin actually speaks of something that is crooked? What's crooked that needs to be straightened? What about the valleys that be filled and the mountains that are brought low? The paths that are straight. You see, the imagery here is this. When a king would go to visit a people, they would prepare the way, a pathway, a road for the king. I was preaching in Canada a few years ago in a place called Trois-Rivières, Three Rivers. And the pastor in this French community where I was preaching, he told me, he said, do you see this, this highway here? And I said, yeah. He said, this is called the King's Highway. And I said, okay. We have a, a freeway in Canada called the Queen Elizabeth Way. And he said to me, do you know why it's called the King's Highway? And I said, no. He said, because when the king was coming from France, they built the highway for him. Because we want, he wanted to come to Trois-Rivières from Quebec City. And in order for him to be able to do that, we really didn't have a sufficient roadway. It would have taken him a long time. There were, there were you know, stop signs and, and so on. So we built this highway so he can just come unimpeded. And the idea is this, guys. When the Bible says prepare the way for the Lord, it says remove any hindrances. Remove any rocks. If there's any potholes, fill them in. If the roads, if the hills are too high, level them. If the valleys are too low, build them up. Make the crooked roads straight. Remove every obstacle. Remove every hindrance so that the King of glory can come in. It deals with our heart. So prepare the way for the Lord prepare. When we read the New Testament, we see that this Satan, the devil, is constantly trying to disrupt our communion with the Lord. He's trying to cause us to become disqualified in one way or the other. So that 
we end up becoming so busy, so distracted, we can't focus on God, or we don't have time, and when we do have time, when we do pray, our minds on so many other things, that we might as well not even bother praying. But one of his ways, one of his tactics, one of his most successful tactics to hinder the move of God, to cause us individually and collectively as a church to miss out on his blessing and the fullness of what he wants to do in our midst is what the Bible calls schism. Schism. Schism is division. The Bible says that he tries to shut down the fire of God in our lives. God wants to burn his presence, his fire. The New Testament is clear that God wants us to experience the fullness of his presence and his glory. You know, the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not put out the Spirit's fire. The context of Paul's warning here elucidates ways by which the Spirit of God is quenched. If we don't rejoice in the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says, we can put out the Spirit's fire. In other words, if we're not rejoicing, we're what? We're grumbling. All right. Prayerlessness. The Bible says to pray without ceasing. If we're not praying, we're what? Why pray when you can worry? So, then, what else? It says, in all things, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Now, let me qualify that. It doesn't say, for all things, give thanks. It says, in all things. Even what the devil's done, give thanks. I'm still here. My head's still above the water. Could have been worse. You made a foolish decision. I've never done that. <coughs> So I can't relate to y'all. But maybe you have. But yet in the midst of, you know, you're in a mess because you made the mess. You, you're in that pit because you dug that pit. And God doesn't say, now just, you made your bed, now lie in it. That's not God. God said, I want to bring you out of it. I want to help you. Give me thanks. Even though that's your mess, that's your mistake, that's your doing, I want you to still give me thanks. Why? Because why? We serve a good God. We serve a faithful Father. We serve a, the Lord who gives, forgives and he gives us a second chance. He is full of kindness and mercy. But we quench the Holy Spirit through this. Then in Ephesians chapter 4, he talks about absolutely grieving the Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The word grieve means to make one feel sorrowful or sad. Don't make the Holy Spirit feel sorrowful or sad. Have you ever, like, gone to church somewhere? Can I just keep it real? And you just kind of wish, well, that was a waste of time. Like, really, I didn't get anything out of it. There wasn't a, a word that, that, that helped me. Presence of God wasn't there. Nobody talked to me. You know, Paul said to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11, your meetings do more harm than good. What? That's what he said. Your meetings do more harm than good. He said, close the doors, shut the church down. You're doing more harm than good because they were fighting and there was division. So what happens? 
God says, that was a waste of time. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, right? Last week, Jesus is outside. I showed up for church, but they wouldn't even let me in. So the point I'm trying to make here is that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can cause him to feel sorrowful. The word also means to offend, and it can also be translated to make one uneasy. The Holy Spirit is, I'm not uneasy. I feel uneasy about the, I feel uneasy about y'all. Come on. Why, guys? He's full of mercy. He loves us. It's not, it's not that. But it's like, you guys, you're not listening. You're not doing what I've called you to do. You're, you're, you're graving the Spirit of God. And he continues, and, and he literally uh, enumerates different ways in which we can grieve the Spirit of God. He says that we grieve the Spirit of God by lying, by stealing, by being angry, by using foul or abusive language, through bitterness, anger, unforgiveness, and schism. You can put a fire out two ways, can't you? You can suffocate a fire. Put a wet blanket on it. Use a fire extinguisher. Or you can just simply neglect putting fuel on the fire. In the first example, it's suffocation. In the second example, it's starvation. Suffocation is a quick process. Suffocation. Starvation is a slow process. Many of us, maybe we're not blatantly, flagrantly rebelling against God and doing these things, but isn't it possible that perhaps we are neglecting our relationship with the Lord? We're neglecting to put the fuel on the fire, and as a result, we're at a place where the fire of God is not burning the way the Lord intended it to or it once was. We need to intentionally stoke the fire of the Spirit in our lives. Leviticus chapter 6, verses 8 and 9 and 12 and 13 says that the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Command Aaron and his sons, this is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth upon the altar all night until morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. Listen to this. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning upon it. It shall not be put out, and the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offering in order on it, and he shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Then verse 13. A fire shall always be burning on the altar. It shall never go out. Is the fire burning? Our heart is the altar. Is the fire burning? Are there things that you're doing that are grieving the Spirit? Are there things you're not doing that are causing the fire to be quenched. Sins of commission, sins of omission. Not only what we do, but what we don't do. 
Are we stirring up the gift of God within us? 2 Timothy 1.6. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, stir up the gift of God within you. Timothy, fan into flame is what it literally means. Fan into flame the gift of God that is in you. In other words, what do you do when a fire is close to being extinguished, or it's close to dying? What do you do? You fan it. Or when that fire is not strong, you fan it so that you can get it burning intensely and ferociously once again. Jesus kept the fire burning in his life through complete consecration. Hebrews 1 verse 9 says that because you hate sin and love righteousness, God has anointed you with the oil of joy more than your brethren. Not only because of a life of complete consecration, but he kept the fire burning because of a life of constant communion with his Father. A life of constant communion with the Father. It says in Mark 1.35 that his custom, his practice was to rise up early and to pray. In Luke 5.16, he often departed to the wilderness to pray. Beloved, the Bible's clear. Satan is a fire quencher. We must be vigilant. Stand on guard against his schemes. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 2 says, not to be ignorant of his devices, or his schemes is what the word means. Don't be ignorant of his devices or of his schemes. Or maybe that's 2 verse 12. There's at least three ways Satan tries to put the fire out in our lives. But as I mentioned, today we're just going to look at this one, schism. What is schism? Schism is a division among the members of a group that occurs because they disagree on something. One of the ways that he attempts to quench the fire is by fomenting division among brothers and sisters. So what does the Bible say in Ephesians 4.3? Guard the unity of the spirit by the bond of peace. Guard the unity of the spirit by the bond of peace. Now, guard isn't a passive word. Guard, actually, in the Greek language, it's a military term. And it literally means to be vigilant, to keep your eye on something, to be intentional, to make sure you're constantly at watch. And the idea is like a sentry. Like a sentry who's, who's watching. So be guard. In other words, what do we do? No intruders. The intruders try to come in. Whatever would try to breach unity, we must be proactive in identifying it and shutting it down. That's what the Bible is saying. Guard the unity of the Spirit by the bond of peace. You know, Satan knows more about the power of oneness than many Christians do. He hates unity. You know what? The devil does not care how big our church is. But when, how big our churches are, but he does care how united our churches are. And the Bible says that schism or division affects, number one, our worship of God. Our worship of God. See, some of us think we can be at odds with one another and there's little or no consequence. The Bible teaches the exact opposite. It says it will affect our worship of God. Do you know what it says? It says, if I, have a, if I have a problem with my wife, if I've treated my wife disrespectfully, 1 Peter chapter 3 tells me my prayers will be hindered unless I go and deal with it and get it resolved. Jesus said, 
in Matthew 5, 24. You go to take your gift to the altar, but then you realize there's a problem between you and your brother. You leave your gift there and go and be reconciled. It's affecting your worship. Come on now. It also, obviously, affects our fellowship with one another. Amos 3, verse 3 says, How can two walk together unless they agree? And then thirdly, it affects us in terms of our success in mission. Our success in mission. Why? Listen to this. John 17, 20 and 21. Jesus said this, praying for believers. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us, that the what? World may know, that the world may believe that you sent me. Wow. One of the greatest testimonies of the early church was how united they were, how much they loved one another, even though they were different ethnic groups and even social classes that met together. Come on now. There were slave owners. Slave owners. That when they got into the fellowship of the believers, they changed to such a degree that these slave owners washed the feet of their slaves. And there was such love and such unity and, and those social walls and those racial walls and all those barriers came down. And when you read the writings of some of the, the uh, church fathers, they talk about that repeatedly. How loving they are. How united they are. In fact, they were so committed to each other that, that even kings and people in authority marveled. These people are unlike anyone else. They love one another. They care for one another. They are so united together. And the Bible says that when believers dwell together in unity, there is a great blessing that is released. See, it's only when we are in complete unity that the blessing is commanded. Do you know God actually speaks about this a few times in the Old Testament? He says, then I will command the blessing. The one time he says, don't sow on the seventh year and you just leave the land and he said, don't worry about it. I will command the blessing and you'll have such a great harvest in the sixth year it'll carry you through to the ninth year. But here, in Psalm chapter 33, it speaks again of the commanded blessing. Psalm 33 speaks about how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And then what does it say? It says it is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron running down in the edge of his garment. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commands the blessing life forevermore. There, what, where's there? When brethren dwell together in unity. There is a special blessing that will fall upon our lives. You know what? We say, well, I, I don't know. You know, I tried and it didn't work out. Listen, I've had people, can I tell you that I've had some nasty things happen to me. I've always tried to do my best, if I've done something wrong, to reconcile to people. To the best of my knowledge, I've kept those short accounts, and I've been able to do that. But let me say this. 
I've had some people that did some things to me and I was hoping I could be reconciled with them and it just didn't happen. But you know what? I kept praying. I kept praying about this. Can I tell you uh, uh, the fact that there was a time when Lynn and I were pastoring a church. We were in our early 20s. It was the first church that we pastored. And guys, it was the most terrible, demonic, evil thing that happened to us. They rose up against us. There were people in the church and they caused so much trouble and lied and, and attacked us. It was, it was a terrible, terrible thing. And it ended up that we had to move on. We couldn't stay there for the good of the church because the church was so divided. We decided we're not going to stick around here and split this thing wide open. So we moved on. And what ended up happening is after 10 years, after 10 years, we prayed, we left it in the hands of God, nothing. We really didn't communicate with anyone in that church. After 10 years or so, we ended up getting a letter in the mail. I don't even know to this day how they got our physical address. But they ended up sending us a letter on behalf of that church, on behalf of the elders of the church, on behalf of the people of that church, saying we have done evil against you, what we did was wrong, and even though there's most of them that were on the board at that time had nothing to do with it in the past, they said we are asking you for forgiveness, we've been asking God, and God has confronted us and told us we need to get this right, and our whole church has suffered because there's been a curse on our church. Well, what we've done and listen they did it to the pastor before me the pastor before him and they did it to pastors after me the same group of people they realized why is it we we keep losing pastors why is it that things are so difficult here why is it that things aren't going well and the Lord said do you really want to know do you really want to know the truth see there's a time in 2nd Samuel 21 where there was famine in the land for three consecutive years and David said, hey, God, why are we having famine? You said that you would bless us. And God said, because there's a relationship with the people that has been breached. And David, you need to make restitution. And things need to be right. And when David did it and made restitution, even though he personally wasn't involved in it, what ended up happening is the blessing came back. Rain came back. Guys, I'm preaching the word. The enemy is a fire quencher. He wants to extinguish the move of the Spirit, but it's in that place of unity that the Lord commands the blessing, the commanded blessing. 2 Chronicles 5, 11 through 14. It came to pass when the priests came out of the most holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without keeping to their divisions, and the Levites who were the singers, all of those of Asaph and Heman and Jeduthun, when their sons, their brethren, stood at the east of the altar, clothed in white linen, having cymbals, stringed instruments, and harps, and with them 120 priests sounding with trumpets. 120. And did you hear that number somewhere else before? And what ends up happening? It says this. Indeed, it came to pass when the 20, 120 priests sounding at the trumpets... And the singers were one, were one, to make one sound, to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. When they lifted up their voices with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments and music and praised the Lord, saying, for he's good, his mercy endures forever. Guess what happened? Then the house, the house of the Lord was filled with the cloud, so the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house. Wow. Why? One. Oneness. 
worshiping God. When they were as one, it happened, guys. It doesn't say when they had practiced so many times that the, their, that the band was so good. Then God was like, whoa, y'all are awesome. It says when they were one. God shows up. It's such an amazing and awesome thing. You see, we have to safeguard unity. Satan is a fire quencher. He does not want us to live in unity. And the more I become, the closer I become to the Lord and the, and the older I get, I'm realizing, you know what, guys? What does it really matter? You know, Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians 6, he said, uh, believer was taking believer to court, brother taking brother. But he said, you know what? This isn't right. You need to reconcile. You need to get this sorted out. And then he said this, why don't you just let yourself be wronged? Because you can win an argument and lose your brother. You can make your point and literally cause someone to turn away from the Lord. I've seen so many people been in ministry over 30 years and I've seen so many people leave churches because of gossip, because of lies, because of disrespect. But let me switch that around. I don't want to just stay in the negative this morning. I remember, I remember hearing so many times the comments, wow, there's such love here. There's such grace here. There's such acceptance here. I, I've visited a lot of other churches and they're bigger and, you know, they're, they're badder and they got everything going on and they got the programs and they got everything else. But I'll tell you what, this church, man, I, I'm loved here. I, I feel love. I feel acceptance here. People talk to me. People welcome me. People spent time with me. And, and I, it was genuine. It was the real deal. And that's what caused people to stick around and to stay. And what ends up happening is you get that spirit active when there's such unity and such love. And, and even when there's division and misunderstandings, we, we deal with those things and we, we make sure that we get things sorted out and reconciled. And look, I mean, I'm not saying that we can, we can stop everybody from whatever, but I am saying we need to make sure that we did the right thing before God. Ultimately, that's it. Well, I... <laughs> It doesn't matter what they do. I'm not, I'm not accountable to God for what they did to me. I'm accountable to God how I handled it, how I responded to it. How did I deal with it? That's the thing that I need to make sure I've resolved with the Lord. Jesus said, by this, all men will know you are my disciples. You love one another. I was praying, and God told me, you got to address this. Can I be honest? The Lord said to me, you got to address this. I don't know. I'm not going to make any applications to anybody. But maybe there's some stuff that you still need to let go of. Maybe there's some people you need to forgive. Maybe there's some relationships that, that you need to 
meant. Maybe in here, there's some stuff that's just not right. And I'm telling you, God wants to pour out His Spirit on us individually, but on us as a church. And I feel like the Lord just said to me, I want to come. I want to come with power. I want to come with love and grace and blessing. I want to make this place. I want to fill this place. I want to, I want to change lives. I want, to, I want to do so much. But prepare the way. Prepare the way. Make the rough places smooth. Make the crooked places straight. Whatever it takes, let's allow God to deal with it. Amen? Let's forgive those we need to forgive. If there's people that we need to ask them for forgiveness, let's, let's do it. I've been praying. I've been asking God to show me. Even if there's things in my past, if there's things that I've done, I want to I wanna know. I want to I deal with it. No matter what it is, let's allow God to bring restoration and reconciliation. Let's allow God to bring healing because He is a good God. He loves everybody. Can you know what it's like when you have kids they are fighting with each other and you're like, one of your kids wants you to side with them and the other one wants you to side with them. And That's like God. That's like God, right? You know what I'm saying? Like God's like, you're all my kids. I'm not going to side with one over the other. You know? You say, well, I'm right. He's wrong. And God's like, you're both wrong. You're both wrong. And that's the truth. God loves us so much that he wants us to be reconciled.